The reading is going to be in two parts, and the first bit is from Genesis 3, and the second from Ecclesiastes um, 2. So Genesis 3, um, verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And Ecclesiastes 2, starting at verse 3b. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now you'd open our hearts and minds to your word and your word to our hearts and minds. We pray that you would give us uh, your perspective on work. We pray that you would give us a right, uh, realistic view of work and that such a view would be uh, healthy uh, to us, uh, potentially corrective where we have need. Pray you'd speak to us and minister to us uh, individually and also corporately as your people gathered. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so last week we saw, didn't we, that, um, that work in all its forms, of course, and, and, and we must be careful to define work uh, broadly, as the Bible does, say <clears throat> whether our work is salaried or whether it's uh, not salaried, whether it's voluntary, in all the various and many ways that we express our work in service and caring and providing and provision, whatever it might be, that work is a good, God-given gift to us. That is established in Genesis 1 and 2. That flows from the fact that we are made in the image of God, and God, of course, is a worker. He is the supreme creator, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And he made us in his image, therefore work is in our DNA. And uh, it has a dignity. The fact that God is a worker dignifies our work. 
It was given as a means by which we reflect the nature of God to his creation. And it was given as a means by which we may serve God as we steward his creation under him and for him, and as we serve others as we produce and provide and tend. <clears throat> and I hope as Andrew was speaking, you know, there were times when all that resonated with you. Because uh, you know, sometimes we feel that, we experience that, don't we? That, you know, a, a job well done, um, a contribution made, uh, an obvious tangible moment of provision or uh, creativity. And we sense that, that goodness, that rightness about it. But we don't always feel it. And for some of us, in fact, <clears throat> we might go so far to say we don't often feel it. Sometimes we feel that work is not what it could be. Uh, work, perhaps, is not what it should be. And uh, indeed, oftentimes people will say, you know, it's all I can do to survive at work at the moment. It's just a struggle for survival. And when we ask, why is that the case? Uh, the Bible says, well, it's not because there is something inherently wrong with work with work itself. But it is because, as we'll see from Genesis in particular, it is because that our rebellion against God, which Genesis 3 uh, uh, lays out before us, has profound implications for the workplace. Sin affects our work and it affects our workplace, as in fact it affects every area of human endeavor and existence. And this morning, what I hope we'll get is we'll get something of the Bible's diagnosis of our problems at work, which will provide for us, I hope, a helpful corrective to false and damaging views of work, and also give us a glimpse of God's healing perspective on work, a perspective which we will uh, develop in the weeks to come. I've got two points this morning to sort of navigate through these two texts, and here's the first, the frustrations of work. The frustrations of work, and that's Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Have that open in front of you, uh, if you would. The point, of course, as we've seen, is that humanity was created to uh, cultivate God's world under him and for him. Uh, God's creation, of course, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see is good. God declares it to be good, that is to say it's fit for purpose. And it is a fruitful place, and so the task of Adam and Eve to cultivate the garden is a joy, with a ready supply of food springing up from a responsive soil. But that all changes. That all changes when Adam and Eve desire to be God rather than to serve God. And humanity's rebellion against God has profound consequences, and they're outlined in Genesis 3. God responds to our rebellion justly in judgment as he brings a curse on various aspects of his creation. And the point is this, sin and its consequences affect now every part of human life. Every part of human life is touched by sin and its consequences. Our physical lives, yes, but also our spiritual lives. Our public lives, 
but also our private lives, our personal lives, and our social lives, and it affects profoundly our work and our workplace. But I want us to notice straight away what it is that God curses and what it is that he doesn't curse. Because this is so often misunderstood. I was doing some research on this this week and I came across an essay on work in Time magazine, that that, uh, international uh, magazine. And the article started with this paragraph. Have a listen to this from Time. Quote, When God foreclosed on Eden... He condemned Adam and Eve to go to work. Work has never recovered from that humiliation. From the beginning, the Lord's words said that work was something bad, a punishment, the great stone of mortality and toil laid upon a human spirit that might otherwise soar in the infinite, weightless playfulness of grace. If you were here last week, you will know that is utter nonsense. Have a look at verse 14. Have a look at verse 14. To Adam he said, what? Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the, what? Ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Cursed is the ground. Do you see, the task of cultivation is not a curse, but the context for our cultivation has become cursed. So Sherman and Hendricks, who wrote that book that Andrew quoted from last week, Your Work Matters to God, excellent book from the bits I've read of it, say this on this point, this is a subtle but crucial distinction they say. The curse made work and the work environment much more difficult, but it did not impose work itself as a punishment, nor did it take away the dignity and value of work. Do you see, work remains God's good gift to us. Work is not itself a punishment. We were not created for weightless playfulness, whatever he means by that. We were created, as we've seen, to work, for work, uh, in the image of God who is himself a worker. It's God's good purpose for us. But sin has spoiled things because it spoiled us personally and it spoiled the world now as the context in which we do our work. The ground has become cursed. There are now thorns and thistles. Work has become painful and frustrating where once it had been joyful and fruitful. Therefore, it seems to me the Bible gives us a truly balanced view of work. As Tim Keller points out, again, helpfully in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which again I've been reading, is incredibly helpful on work. He says this, look, Christians should neither be idealists or cynics. When it comes to work, it says the world so often splits into those two camps when it comes to work, either cynicism or idealism. He says, well, Genesis 3 here, both are wrong. We're not to be cynics. Genesis 1 and 2 stops that. So it's not a question of I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. It's not for that longing for the weekend mentality. Work is simply a means to a salary, just that incredibly sort of instrumental view of work. No, Genesis 1 and 2 says no to that. 
Work is still God's good gift to us. It's still part of what it is to be human. It still has that dignity that flows from being made in the image of God. Verses 15, 16, there'll be thorns and thistles, yes, but God says we're still to tend, we're still to cultivate, we're still to eat from the soil. It will still bear fruit. The task remains. The cultural mandate, as some refer to it, continues. The earth still needs to be stewarded as a service to God and to others. There is still creativity, productivity, provision. And uh, I think as we think about that in the weeks to come, it'll give us a framework which will stop our frustrations at work from becoming ultimate. But neither are we to be idealists. You know, uh, if only I could find the right job, I'd be fulfilled. Uh, I'd had that trouble-free existence. Neither are we to be those then that make work our primary meaning maker for life. No, there'll always be a gap between the ideal and the experience in the workplace. Two reasons readily spring to mind. First, of course, is that our sin affects our own sort of performance and productivity at work and in the workplace. Keller goes on to sort of note that we, of course, may never get to do what we'd love to do because we, we lack the opportunity to do it. Or maybe we lack the ability to do it. Or we might uh, get what we think is the dream job, only to find it's much harder than we imagined it would be. Or in fact, we're not able to do it as we'd like to do it, as we'd long to do it. Just can't, just can't do it as we'd, as we'd like. Sometimes, of course, we'll do a good job, only to find that the results are unexpectedly poor. Or, or there'll be some unforeseen circumstances that undermine the work that we've done. Or the impact of the work that we've done is not what it could have been if other circumstances had been different, or perhaps not what it should have been if other circumstances had been different, and so on. All of that, of course, leads to frustration. And sin doesn't just affect our performance and our productivity, it affects our personal relationships. Of course it does. The workplace is uh, usually a web of personal relationships. But we know that we're all sinful people, that we're all naturally self-centered. And so uh, put sinners together in a stressful environment such as work, and of course you have a recipe for um, uh, times of conflict and envy, times of um, self-promotion and selfish ambition, uh, mistakes and misunderstandings. Of course they're commonplace in the workplace. It's because we're all sinners, in a stressful environment. All of that leads to frustration, and it leads to pain. Now, of course, it gives us as Christians a great opportunity to be salt and light, and we'll think about more of that in the weeks to come. But we'll all feel the consequences of sin in the workplace, and sometimes we'll be the cause of problems in the workplace. So the Bible says... Be realistic about work. We should expect work to be both at times fulfilling. There'll be moments of it being fulfilling and that sense of, yes, job well done. Yeah, I've accomplished something. We'll sense that. We'll feel that. But also there'll be times of frustration. We'll we'll experience both. 
That is the biblical perspective on work, and I take it, therefore, that is the healthy perspective on work. That is the perspective we need to have if we're to think about our work lives rightly. So we need not have a pointless career. That's the first thing to say, isn't it? We need not have a pointless career. We can and we should cast our work in the light of service to God and service to others and know that God finds that pleasing. Even the most menial, as we've just sung in that wonderful song from uh, Herbert, even the most menial, even the most frustrating job can and should be cast in, its, in terms of its service to God and to others. And as we do that, we gain that perspective that transcends the immediate frustrations. We need to have a pointless career, but of course there's no such thing as a perfect career. Genesis 3 will go on and say, All jobs will have their frustrations. We'll all find struggles at work, disappointments. And they are not necessarily a sign that we're not cut out for it. Or that God is telling us to move on to something else. No, there'll be thorns and thistles in whatever job we do. Our contributions, our creativity will never be what they could be or what they perhaps should be. But they're still valuable. That doesn't mean, oh, I'm doing the wrong thing or God is telling me to move on. No, they're still valuable. Now, don't mishear me, of course. If we think we are more suited for a different job and there's an opportunity to get a different job, well, of course, we take it. I mean, there is that sense in which it's right, isn't it, to think how we can maximize our fruitfulness, knowing the gifts and the talents God has given us. Of course, that's right. We want to maximize our fruitfulness, but we will never escape frustrations in the workplace. There'll always be thorns and thistles. So that's a little something on the frustrations of work, and I think sort of the helpful biblical view of what work should be. Secondly and finally, Ecclesiastes, which lays out for us, turn back to Ecclesiastes, it lays out for us, I think, something of the false promise and futility of work. Uh, 669, we'll get you back to Ecclesiastes 2, 669, for the false promise and futility of work. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. Where can I find meaning, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Where do I look for meaning? I know, great projects, work. For many, work holds the promise of significance and self-worth, but it is a false promise. I came across this uh, quote um, from John Thor, the actor, of course, most famously known for playing um, Inspector Morse uh, here in Oxford. And uh, he said this once, a quote, I suppose I am a workaholic. It's all about needing to work to give yourself some importance, to prove that you exist. If I have a month or two off with nothing happening, I get very fidgety, nervy and edgy. It isn't insecurity because I know there's work coming up. It must be, I suppose, that I need to work so as to be able to say to people, look, I'm here, I exist. It's a striking quote, isn't it? Work for Thor has become more than just a means of getting a salary. It's become the means by which he gets significance and self-worth. He's trying to build a life on work. And his experience is exactly what the Bible says will happen 
when we allow a good, God-given thing to replace God. It's enslaved him. He's become a workaholic. And of course, that's, of course that's going to happen if you deify your work, if you look to your work to provide meaning and significance. Because the more work you do, the more significance and meaning you get. And so you get caught in the vicious cycle. Many in our society live like that. And of course, it's a trap that we can fall into. Work is one of the great rivals to God. One of the great idols of our society. And uh, some of our problems at work may well arise when our work displaces our God from our affections. When we believe the promise of work that, that it is a better provider of security and significance and self-worth than our creator is. And if we go down that line, it'll be profoundly destructive Vaughan Roberts says this, work too often becomes an alternative God so that our great goal is no longer to please him but rather to please the boss or to achieve a target or to gain promotion. Well, friends, if that's our goal, then work will drive us into the ground. Such a view of work, of course, is damaging to us and it's dishonoring to the God who loves and is committed to our good. But it is also disappointing. We'll be disappointed with work if we approach it like that because as the writer of Ecclesiastes discovers, there is attached to all work an element of futility. Did you pick that up in verse 11? When I surveyed, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. That word meaningless, it's that big refrain, vanity, vanity, in, in, in Ecclesiastes, is the Hebrew word hebel, and it means literally vapor or mist. It is something that is fleeting and fragile, and it gives us an insight into what the writer of Ecclesiastes discovers about work, and that is it is far too fleeting and fragile to build a life on. Work in this cursed world has a futility about it. For instance, it's never done, the writer of Ecclesiastes notes. It's an endless cycle. Verse 9 of chapter 1, he writes this, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. Sherman and Hendricks say this, We do the work, but it never lasts. It must be done again and again, if not by us, by someone else. And who knows what those other people will be like and what they'll do with the work you hand on to them. Verse 18, if you flick your eyes, chapter 2, the writer says this, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Everything you've poured your life into is taken away at death and given to somebody else, over whom you have no control and who might be a fool. And of course, Ecclesiastes will go on to say, time and tide ultimately renders everything we achieve obsolete. Death washes away every footprint we hope to leave, one counselor wrote. So work's promise of lasting significance ultimately proves false, because it doesn't last. And some of our problems at work will arise because we look to it to provide that which it can't. 
But futility does not have to be the final word in the workplace. For as the writer of Ecclesiastes grasps, finally, there is more to life than what we see under the sun. God's story of redemption is bigger than the story of our lives, if you like. Uh, It is a story that can provide real purpose and meaning for all of our work. Because as we've recently celebrated at Easter, we celebrate, do we not, a sun (coughs) who rises, (coughs) excuse me, and can if you like, drive that chill mist of futility away from the workplace, for he rises as Lord over all, including our work and our work lives. Christ's resurrection opens up the possibility of a work life of purpose and meaning, a work life that will not be proved ultimately futile. A work life lived in the light of the risen Jesus, shaped by him in his service And in the service of others. In the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, these verses from Colossians, and I'm going to read some of them to us now. Uh, We don't need to turn them up. Colossians 3 Whatever you do, says Paul, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Do you see the point? Paul reminds us here that the resurrection of Christ means that if we put our work life into a bigger gospel perspective, if we grasp and live its true purpose as a vehicle to express God's image, serve him and others, then our work and our work lives will not be proved futile. Our work as an act of service to the Lord will be remembered and rewarded. After death, we will go to the risen Lord Jesus' side for whom we have labored. And so it will not be to the silence of death that we will go, but to the sound of our Savior and Sovereign saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Our work and our work lives will be remembered and valued and affirmed. What you did was right and good and it pleased me. Every action motivated by God's word and empowered by God's spirit, done to serve God and to serve others. All of our work that expresses our salvation life will be honored. And in the next three Sundays, we'll think a little bit more about what such a life in the workplace looks like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you that you have given us in your word the right perspective for our work lives. Neither cynicism for work is good and God-given and a means by which we may serve you and serve others. But neither idealism, the workplace is cursed, we are sinners, and the workplace is spoiled. There will always be thorns and thistles, frustrations and pain. Pray we'd have that right, healthy perspective on work. Pray we would never look to work as a replacement for you, but rather as a means by which we may serve you. And that as we put our work into that bigger uh, perspective of the story of redemption, 
so we might know that our work is not futile, but is honoring to you and will be honored by you when we see you face to face. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.